in a series on our Sunday night, Faith at Five Messages, in the book of Hosea, book of Hosea. And we're in the first part of that book. There are several different messages that Hosea actually preaches here. Uh, but this is the first one, and I've called it Scenes from a Broken Home. And we'll see in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I'll give her her vineyards from thence in the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of land of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. You know, when we look at this passage, we are seeing a time when God had worked in Hosea's life so that his message became his life, or his life was his message. And you'll remember, we've watched a little bit uncomfortably, I must say, over the last couple of three weeks as we've seen God say to Hosea, the prophet, to go and marry Gomer. And uh, who is called a harlot in scripture. Um, he married her. They had a child. Uh, then the Bible tells us specifically that was Hosea's child. But then there were two more children born. And one of those is not called Hosea's child. It's called Gomer conceived and bore a child. And then uh, the next one was specifically said, uh, this one's not mine. That was the child's name. And God pulled aside then the curtains of Hosea's very private pain in order to show what was happening in his marriage. But there was another part of the story. Because Hosea was, in effect, turned into a picture. Uh, his relationship with Gomer was going to be used as an example of God's relationship with Israel. God had taken that nation, and this was the northern kingdom, and from their inception, from the time that they started, they were messed up. They had rebelled against God's anointed king. They established their own form of worship, which was idolatry, uh, built their own temple. I mean, the, the, the northern kingdom was messed up from the beginning, and yet God still loved them, and God still sent prophet after prophet to turn them back and work to try to bring them back to himself. God then through Hosea was showing what was going on in his heart and how he was dealing with his people Israel. We've watched as Hosea's heart was filled with love for Gomer. We've watched as the nightmare of infidelity swept into his marriage. We've watched as his heart was filled with hope. As maybe she began to say, this, no more, I'm going to be different, it's all going to change. And then we watched that hope last week turn to hostility. Uh, as apparently she went back again and now he's calling on Jezreel, even the children are getting into it. And go and bring charges, bring charges against her. And we heard those bitter, bitter words uh, come out of Hosea's mouth as his family was ripped apart. In a way, though, all of these things were illustrating God's love for us. Even when God speaks in judgment to us, God still loves us. Gomer turned away, even though she was turning to a very painful path that God said was 
going to cost her everything. Remember how God said that he would build up walls against Israel and he would put those thorny uh, uh, barriers in place against them. It was going to be a very painful path for them to continue to walk away from God. And yet after all this, we have another scene tonight before us with Hosea where Hosea was saying, I'm going to court Gomer again. I mean, that's, uh, that's what it's about. I will allure her. That's what he says. What, what's he saying? I, I'm going to go and court her. And if courting is not a good word for you younger folks, just substitute one of your will. I don't know. I, we would call it dating. and I don't know. The language changes over the years. Uh, we called it courting when I was coming up. And um, I'm going to court her. It's hard to imagine that after her infidelity, after bearing two children into their home that Hosea, that weren't Hosea's, it's hard to imagine that Hosea would want her back. After watching her repeatedly going out to meet other men and going and, and living apart for a while and coming back when she ran out of anything and she needed something from Hosea, after watching this again and again, and this didn't play out in a couple of weeks, folks. This has gone on for years. For years. And now he says, I'll court her and I'll bring her back. I'll romance her. I'll be a, a better suitor to her than anyone else she's known. But now the years of hard living are no doubt taking their toll on Gomer. You know, sooner or later, especially the life of sin, it starts to show up on people. And you've seen that. Perhaps by now Gomer would not be, though her name means beautiful. Maybe, maybe that's not quite the case so much anymore. She was once courted, but now her life is filled with crude propositions. With laughter and rough jesting and coarseness. I, I have no idea how that Hosea actually went about courting her. I, all I know is that here it is. It's what he says. He says, I'm going to do it. I will allure her. And sometimes, you know, we try to imagine things, and I do that a lot, and this is by no means authoritative. It's just I try to say, you know, maybe, maybe he wrote her a note or sent her a card. You know, maybe he sent her some flowers. Um, maybe he went by to see her. Maybe there was a small gift with a note and Maybe after a while, you know, you might see them maybe sitting around and talking. Maybe Gomer laughing, giggling. How could such a thing happen? You and I know how. Uh, Hosea could have no more done this on his own than he could have loved her in the first place. God was working in his heart. It's the only explanation that I can give you to give him a heart for Gomer so that he would want her back in spite of everything. God did this to give us a picture of his heart. Isn't it amazing that we have a God who loves us and wants us back when we have walked away from him? When he knows everything we've done and everything we've thought about doing, 
It's amazing that he would want us back and actually try to win us back unto himself. It would be difficult for us to imagine Hosea taking her back if she came crawling to him uh, on her hands and knees. I mean, that, that, that's, uh, you'd understand the bitterness that might grow in the heart of a man toward a wife who had repeatedly been unfaithful to him. Uh, there's something almost scandalous, one writer said, about forgiveness on this scale. To keep forgiving again and again and again. A love that keeps on loving, that keeps on seeking, that keeps on restoring. It just doesn't compute. It doesn't fit into our program. But it does fit into God's program. God would say to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. How about that one? God uses then this love of Hosea as a picture, as he did so often with the prophets. He put a picture in their life to show how that he was dealing with his people or how that he was seeing this situation. And he, he would play it out, act it out almost in the lives of their prophet, real though they were. I'm not telling you that these were imagined experiences. They were very real experiences. When God said to Ezekiel, I'm going to take away the apple of your eye with a stroke. And you don't mourn or cry or weep. You stand in front of the people when it happens and you preach and you say to them, as I have done, you'll do. You're not going to be able to mourn your loved ones. Ezekiel then said, so at the morning I spake unto the people and at evening my wife died. Did that really happen? Yeah. It was a real deal. Did Hosea really love Gomer? Yep. Did he still love her in spite of the fact that she had done all these things? Yeah. Did, he, did he get aggravated at her? Oh, yeah, I imagine a bunch of times. But our text tonight has him going to woo her back. No doubt some would say, Hosea, don't you know she'll just leave you again and she'll just break your heart? Why don't you leave that woman alone? We'd say to him, I'd say to him, you know, Hosea, there's plenty of good women out there that'll make you a good wife, that'll be a good mama to those kids that'd love to have a husband like you. Why don't you just forget about her? Move on. Let her go. We looked in at these marvelous passages tonight describing the steps that God takes to woo and win his people back to himself even when we are unfaithful to him. And they play out for us very plainly in these passages. First, we'll notice that God speaks. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Uh, the word translated comfort here is uh, this whole expression, speak comfort to her, is also translated, I will speak to her heart. I'll get you into the wilderness and speak to your heart. And that's a beautiful picture of how God works to bring his people into the quiet places so that he can speak to our hearts. Uh, we saw God do this with the prophet Elijah. You remember how that after the prophets of Baal had had risen up against him, and then he had overcome all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, and, and Elijah, he decided to run, and boy, he ran for a long time. 
The first picture of God's grace was God sent an angel to him to bake that first angel food cake, you remember, and, and he ate that cake, and he went on the, on the strength of that meat, the Bible says, for 40 days, 40 nights. How many of you know tonight when you start running from God, you're going to have to run a long, long way. Forty days and forty nights in the cave. And then he, he sees the wind and the fire and all those things that came to him and God wasn't there. And finally, what did he hear? Still, small voice. You see, sometimes God has a way of getting us out into the wilderness and getting us where we've run a long, long way until it's quiet enough for us to listen, to hear that still, small voice. But in this case, God would say, I'm going to bring them out into the wilderness. We might put it in our language and say, you know, hey, I, we just need to get away, honey. I'm going to, I'll, I'll take Gomer out and I'll bring her to the wilderness and I'll speak, speak to her heart. You know, when people run away from God, don't make too much of this tonight, but when people are running away from God, they quickly learn to avoid the quiet. <laughs> I don't want quiet. The last why the paths of sin are so loud and boisterous. I mean, it's obvious to us. But no matter how you might try, sooner or later, the loud and boisterous paths of sin will give way to the quiet time. And there is when God will speak to our hearts. And what he does then is he speaks the very words that we long to hear. When God speaks to us, he is speaking the words that address the deepest needs of our heart. If we put it into the language of the courtship, as that's what the passage is doing with Hosea courting after Gomer. Put it in the language of the courtship and Hosea would have her get away so he could speak to her heart. We call them sweet nothings. I don't know why we call them sweet nothing. They're anything but nothing, aren't they, ladies? The words that uh, the, the woman needs to hear from the man who loves her, the words of love and attraction and beauty, things that you desperately need to hear, whether you're courting or whether you've been married for decades. Sweet nothings? No, they're not sweet nothings. No, they mean a lot. But God's word meets something far, far deeper than that. He meets a, a need in our hearts that we don't even know until he feels it. We don't even know what we need. Until God has showed us what that really is. What a special, special thing then this would have been to Gomer. No one would have spoken kind words or no one would have spoken to her heart for a long, long, long time. There's nothing like what happens when God's people begin to hear God's voice after they've been wandering the paths of sin for a while. Don't you know that prodigal son loved to hear the father's voice when he came to him and embraced him? He didn't know how much he needed to hear it until he heard it. He didn't know how incredible the words were going to be, not words of condemnation, not words of anything except my son was dead and now he's alive again. 
Clean this boy up. Put the robe on him. Put the ring on his finger. Restore him to his position. He never expected to hear that. But when he heard it, the father still loves me. The father has forgiven me. What was Hosea saying to Gomer? What was God saying to Israel? He was saying, stop this affair with the world and come home. Because God and God alone can speak to our hearts. Secondly, then, we'll notice that God is not only speaking, but also God is giving. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And so God promises to restore her vineyards. And remember, he's already talked about how that he would take all of these things away from her. All of the blessings that he had given. He had said, I'm going to take all of those things away. But now he says, I'm going to restore them back to you. And he brings up a very interesting place, the valley, he says, of Achor. The valley of Achor. You see, this was the place where Achan and his family were found out. You remember after the battle of Jericho, God told them, don't get anything. And yet Achor, the Achan, saw the goodly Babylonish garment, uh, clothes that he couldn't wear. He saw a wedge of gold, money he couldn't spend. (laughs) And he got this stuff, and what did he do? He buries it. And then all Israel suffered a horrible, horrible defeat because of his sin. Well, that was the Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor then was the first place that Israel was unfaithful to God after he brought them into the promised land. Achor. First place they messed up. I mean, they've come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Jordan River. They've won the victory over Jericho. And then they messed up. The place where they're in, they first suffered under divine judgment because of the sin and rebellion. And God says, I'm going to take you back to that place the first time you messed up. And I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Why? What was God telling them? The valley of Achor was a place of repentance. It was a place where they turned to God and where they dealt with their sin. And when they turned to God and they confessed and forsook their sin, and and yes, that brought horrible punishment on Achan and his family. That's true. But still, the nation did what? They repented. They confessed and they forsook their sin. And so God is going to tell you, I'm going to take you to that valley of Achor. But instead of being remembered then as a place of, of judgment and a place of failure and a place of sin, he says, I'm going to turn it into a place of hope. Only God can take our valley of Achor and turn it into a place of hope. Only God can do that. Oh, but Brother Rich, you don't know how I've messed up. I don't have to know. God does. God does. And he will meet you right there at that place of sin, right there at that place of failure, right there at that place of rebellion. He will meet you right there. And if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I will turn your valley of Achor into a valley of hope. I will take the place where you've, yes, even experienced my judgment, God said. 
and I'll turn it into a place of hope. And not only that, but he said, I'll restore your vineyards to you. What a promise. What a blessing. Repentance brings restoration. It is God's way of reminding us that no matter what sin might take away from, his life, from our lives, God has a remarkable way of bringing it all, all back. And then some. And then some. Though God is speaking. He speaks to their heart. And we see that God is giving to them. And then as he gets them out in this last portion of this message, God makes some promises. Verse 15, I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor is a door of hope. Oh, I love this. She shall sing there. As in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt, she will sing there, God said. I'll put the song back in her soul, the song of joy that she lost. I will bring back to her. The paths of sin take away the song. It takes away the joy. The joy that we share when we enter into the presence of God. The joy that really can't be found anywhere else or from anybody else. The joy of Jesus. The joy that he promised us. These things I've promised to you that your joy may be full. We also remember David crying out to God, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Oh, if we could look at this passage and see the time and we can recognize that there is something missing in our life, maybe that we don't even know that it's missing until God fills it. That is especially true of the joy of the Lord. The world can, can offer a lot of substitutes. It can offer us thrills and happiness. But it is a pitiful, poor substitute for the joy of Jesus. The world can't give you that. You'll search the world over and not find it. God says, I'll bring the song back to your soul. <laughs> It'll be there just like you was before you ever, all this ever happened. God promises joy. God promises tenderness. Verse 17, and it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Eshai, and shalt, know, shalt call me no more Baalai, for I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. Eshai means my husband. Balaam means my master. Uh, the simple truth was that the Israelites had worshipped the Baals so long that they were beginning to call God my Baal. Isn't that amazing? They'd gotten so far away from God that they had trouble understanding where God stopped and Baal started or where Baal stopped and, and God started. God, they called God my Baal, but God said, I'm going to take that away from you. And from now on, you're going to call me not Baal. Baal means my master. When they turned to worship the Baalim, they found a very cruel and harsh master. But God says, I'm not going to be that way. You remember the prophets of Baal and what they did when they were praying to their God? They were cutting themselves and abusing themselves. That's the kind of God Baal was. And that got worse from there. 
Now God says, you come back to me and I will take away from you even the thought of Baal and they shall no more be remembered by their name. God says, I'll be your husband and not your master. And when he says, I'll make it so that you don't even remember the Baals, he was saying, I'll make sure you don't miss the ones that you left behind. Occasionally, I hear people talk about what we have to give up to serve Jesus. <laughs> we get way more. Amen. That's uh, not about what we give. It's about what we get. God says, I'll make sure you don't even miss what's out there. What a restoration that is. God then promises security. Verse 18, in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. God says, I'll make a covenant with all the things then that could threaten you or disturb you so that when we are right with God and working, walking in the joy of His presence and following His path, He provides an incredible peace that comes along with that. So that we have these deep needs of our life met, which are the three, by the way, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace. All three of them right here in this passage. I'll give you love. I'll speak tenderly to you. I'll be your husband. I won't be your master. I'll give you joy. I'll put the song back in your soul. And I'll give you peace because I'll make a covenant with everything that threatens you. And none of it can get to you without going through me. <laughs> oh, yes, we're eternally safe with God. That's exactly true. Our salvation is eternally safe with Him. But I'll also tell you this. The safest place on earth to be is in the will of God. <laughs> safest place on earth to be is in the will of God. Well, you say, well, what about all those folks that died as martyrs? Yeah, what about them? Jesus, you see, said something about them. He said, you know, they can kill you. They'll say all manner of evil against you, and they'll even kill you for my name's sake. But he, then he said something else right after that. He said, but not a hair of your head will perish. How do you like that one? <laughs> now, which one of those is true? They're both true. They can kill you, but they can't hurt you. The safest place in all the world to be is in the will of God. Be in the will of God. God may send you through some tough spots. You may have to endure some tough things. But you have put your life and I have put my life into the hands of a loving God who has promised us that he does all things well. And he is trustworthy. He never promised us that we wouldn't have some hard times to go through. He didn't tell us that. He told us just the opposite. But he also promised us that we'd never have to go through them alone. Amen. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are eternally safe with him. God says, I'll make a covenant with you so that you can have peace. And then comes the greatest promise of all. Verse 19. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. I will betroth thee. 
This is a glorious promise that God is making here. And in fact, it is, again, it's the most amazing promise of all. Come back to me, God says. Forget about those false gods that you're worshiping. Leave the paths of sin and return to your God. And I will see to it that we can go back and start all over. nothing short of incredible that God can take us to the place where we can start again. One of the great promises that God gave to his people was when he said, I'll restore unto you the years that the canker worm has eaten or the locust have eaten. So that God can take us back to the place where we start again. He was playing this out in the life of Hosea and Gomer as he said to her, Honey, we can go back to the days of our betrothal. It can be like none of this ever happened. Back before the years of sin and heartache and misery, back beyond all the hurt and betrayal, we'll go back to the days when we first met and fell in love. I won't hold these things against you. And you know, that's what God tells us. I will forgive your sin. And I will remember them against you no more. This is a story then of reconciliation between Hosea and Gomer, right? It's time when they got back together. Hosea went after her. He wooed her. He won her. She came back home. Everything was going to be, they'd get a fresh start. Everything was going to be fine. He was going to restore her vineyards. She'd be fruitful again. He was going to bless her and love her. And so Gomer heard all that and she just came running back. And they, of course, lived happily ever after, right? That's not the story. That's not the story at all. In fact, in our next message, we're going, to, we're going to see Gomer going back. We'll see Hosea going back to her one more time. And this time, by the way, he goes back to her in the slave market. I won't tell you more. I'll save you that, save that for next week. I'm just going to say to you tonight, in spite of everything that Hosea did and said to try to win her back, Gomer refused. How can a woman spurn the love of a man who courts her this way, not to win her, but to win her back? How could a woman, after everything she had done, refuse the love of a man who offers her a new start and a new beginning? I don't know how she did it. I just know she did it. Part of me would like to think that Gomer maybe paused when she walked away. Walked away once again, one more time from Hosea who loved her this incredible way that he has shown love to her. I'd like to think maybe she at least took a look back at him and saw him sitting there in the door of the parsonage with the little kids there beside him. And I'd like to think maybe she at least shed a tear a little bit thinking about leaving a man who loved her like that. A man who loved her like nobody else would ever love her. I'd like to think that. We don't know that. 
The only thing we know is that she refused him and she went on in her sin. And we will see that her sin will take her as far as it can take her down until she can go no longer. In the book of Genesis, before Jacob, who became Israel, who was the old patriarch and prophet, before he died, he called his sons together. And he began to call their names, and he started, of course, with his firstborn, Reuben. And as, as a patriarch and a prophet, this is what the Old Testament prophets did and patriarchs did. They would call their sons and start with the oldest, and they would pronounce upon them that blessing, that prophetic blessing upon them. It's a huge deal. starts out with Reuben and he tells him you're my firstborn and he has all these complimentary things and we can just almost see Reuben begin to swell oh yeah daddy's gonna give me something good after all I am the firstborn son so I get the birthright I get the blessing I mean it's all coming to me I'm the firstborn Jacob would fix that steely gaze of his upon his son. And this is what he said to him. You're unstable as water. You see, water goes down and down and down and down until it can't go down anymore. And that's what sin does. It's what sin does to anybody. Saved or lost, God's people are, are completely running away from God. Sin will take you down until you can't go down anymore. That's what sin does. And especially if God's people who turn away from God, who know God, and who go running after the paths of sin, and they find themselves under the chastening hand of God, how is it going to play out? They're going to go down into sin until they can't go down anymore. That's what we're going to see happen in the life of Gomer. She's walking away from Hosea, just like Israel had walked away from God. In spite of all of his promises, in spite of his great love, instead of all of the blessings, instead of the promise of joy and restoration, then she's walking away. They were walking away from God to a time of misery. Scenes from a broken home. I'm glad to be able to tell you that the story does have a happy ending. <laughs> I do like happy endings. And I'm here to tell you tonight, your story can have a happy ending too. You see, you may have been a person who has wandered away from God and you've gone far, 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 far away from God. You can't go so far from God that God doesn't know where you are. God can find you wherever you are. He doesn't have to look for you. He knows where you are. And the moment that you turn back to him in repentance, oh, God is sitting there waiting for you, waiting to meet you when you come back to him. Maybe you haven't gone all that way, all that very far. Maybe it's just a couple of bad choices, a couple of bad decisions, maybe uh, just a few things that's gone on. And you think, well, it's, that's not so bad. Well, sin is working on you more than you know. It always does. That's why the Bible tells us that we are to confess our sins and 
then God can cleanse us from our sin. That is, we repent of our sins and turn back to God. Don't wait on sin to take everything that you've got. Don't wait on that. Turn back to God. Let's stand together, please.